You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, do you remember the schools you went to as a kid? Of course I remember the schools I went to. What kind of question is that, Michael? It's a question that I'd like to know. Where did you go? So I started off, I went to Cherokee Elementary in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And that's where I started. I went. I was there for two years. I actually went to kindergarten and transition. They like kind of made everyone go to transition. What I don't transition? really know why. It's like an extra grade between kindergarten and first grade. Ooh, and bonus. everyone I used to tell that to, like they just started making fun of me. And so I quit telling people that for a while. But I feel and like I'm at an age where I can just, yeah, I'm just going to like, you know, I have enough confidence that I'm not going to stress about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, but then um, my family moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I went to Francis Scott Key Elementary, Ooh. which I always thought shouldn't just the, the school song be like the Star Spangled Banner. We had a whole song about like him writing the Star Spangled Banner. And that was our school song. Interesting. Yeah. So, okay. moving. And then I went to uh, Bird Middle School. And so these were all public schools all the way along the lines. Um, when my, named after who? Or is this just a bird? Yeah. That was after an explorer. And our mascot was the penguins. We were like the bird explorers, but our mascots was, were penguins. Penguins and the are guy, birds, I think. Yeah. I should, but like he explored like the North Pole. I did go to private school for a few years. I went to two years of Catholic middle school, Marquette Middle School, and then I went to private high school, Casha Hall, and the name says a lot about it. And I went there for a couple of years, and I really actually missed my friends in public school, and so I self-transferred out in the middle of a semester with my parents' blessing. Oh, wow. And they, Yeah, they probably liked saving the money, and I went back to public school and graduated from Tulsa Memorial. And I think the thing I talk about the most as a teacher educator is the difference between Going to Casha Hall, it was just, it, it, there was a lot of good things about it. It was a very good school in many ways. I mean, it completely lacked any diversity, and mm-hmm. it was a real bubble culturally. And going back to Memorial, I think I learned, I had some good, really good teachers there. There was um, also some some things that I think could have been better, but, you know, I, le- I made lifelong friends, and I was around people who were different from me every day, Yeah, and it was a really cool experience, and so... I, I really enjoyed my school experience, um, but I also was a critic of like the things wrong with it throughout. When I decided to become a teacher, I was like, we can do some of this stuff better. That was part of my We motivation. can do it better. You know, I only taught at public schools, both at the high school and university level. And I taught for five years at Westmore High School. And I tell people I would put our faculty and our school up against any school in anywhere, any private school anyone um, is paid for. I was so proud of what we we're able to do. And I think there's something special about public schools. You know, it's a, it's a civic institution in our society. Yeah. And I know we're going to, in some upcoming episodes, Michael, we're going to look at the history a little bit of public schools. And we can talk about why Bishop John Hughes and the, and the Bible Wars of the 1800s led to the rise of Catholic schools and stuff like that. But with the confirmation of Betsy DeVos, which we talked about in episode 42, there's certainly a lot of discussion about public schools and school choice and charters and private schools and vouchers. And so I think we need to talk about the role that public school plays in our society. Hopefully we have, um, you know, at least a guest, if not four or five to discuss that with us today. (laughs) We'd love to welcome into the podcast our guests um, who are going to talk about 
protecting public schools and the role of public schools. So if you guys would love to introduce yourselves, just tell us a little bit about um, your names, your background, and, and um, what you're doing. Yeah, I'm Talia, and I teach fifth grade in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, so it's just outside of Portland, Maine. I've been teaching for about 16 years. Uh, I started out in Brooklyn, New York, and ended up out here, and there we go. And you won Teacher of the Year. That's worth oh, mentioning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I was the 2016 Teacher of the Year for Maine. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Maine used to be part of Massachusetts, so I feel like we're kind of like kindred spirits. I know. And Southern Maine, our governor calls Southern Maine, Northern Massachusetts. So huh. it's like we're neighbors. It is. That's that's funny. I like to call Texas Baja, Oklahoma. I'm from Oklahoma. Huh. Texans don't like, like that or even recognize it when I say it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ashley from Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm the 2016 Kentucky Teacher of the Year. I teach at North Oldham High School, English and Creative Writing. My my friend my friend Beth is in Louisville. She teaches as well. Yeah. I don't know if you know Beth. her. Her name is Beth. What's her last name? That's a very good question. <laughs> Sounds like she a got close married friend. since that we were friends. Whenever people are like, "Hey, I know someone from your state," it's like you know, it's like there's a so many people who are known would know. One time, I was literally backpacking through Europe, and someone said, "Hey, I know someone from Oklahoma," and I was like, "Well, I'm sure I won't know them, but who is it?" And they said, "My sister." that's funny i'm ryan kaiser i am from omaha nebraska i started teaching school in omaha nebraska i taught there for about six years and about 12 years ago i moved out to baltimore so i teach in baltimore now in 2015 i was the baltimore city teacher of the year and then in 2008-16 we're not 18 yet so in 2016 i became the maryland teacher of the year i teach uh middle school history at a school called Mount Washington School, which is in Baltimore. And uh, there is a Francis Scott Key school in Baltimore, too. Which makes more sense than in Tulsa, Oklahoma, geographically yeah. and historically. <laughs> it's actually about two blocks from uh, Fort McHenry where the flag flew. So it makes a little more sense there. But Yeah, I've always really liked this, the school names that have more local ties as opposed to like these national ties. I think it helps you get to know your community better. So right. we always love another social studies person in, in the house. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad to be here. Hi, I'm Audrey Jackson. I'm originally from Vermont and I have been teaching in Boston for about the past 10 years. I teach fifth grade at the JP Manning Elementary School where we specialize in, in full inclusion um, and working with kids who have experience some form of trauma, either abuse, neglect, mental illness of some kind. And this past year, I got to meet all of these other awesome teachers because I was picked as the 2016 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. Congratulations. On behalf of Massachusetts, I congratulate you. I'm so happy you're able to, you know, wave the Massachusetts flag, the banner. <laughs> Thank you. So... Can you guys tell us what you've been up to? I know that you guys have all come together to do some work um, and you have a common cause. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what you're doing? Basically, over the course of the year, since we've known each other last January, we've all kind of started to recognize, you know, the value of having the platforms that we have as teachers of the year from each of our states. And here and there, we'd have conversations about coming together and figuring out ways to combined forces and it never really panned out. And then right 
in the weeks leading up to the election, I think there was more of a sense of urgency about that. And so we picked that conversation up where we left off and, and then decided to create a video. So I'm actually the CEO and founder of an ed tech startup called Curio Learning. And we're actually creating a platform for teachers for professional development and resource sharing. So my co-founder is a designer and he does, you know, he's in the tech world. And so we decided to create a video with the state teachers of the year, 45 of the state teachers of the year who all came together. And really, we just wanted the message of the video to be that we welcome all students in our classroom, you know, because of the rhetoric leading up to the election. That's kind of where we wanted to put our energy is focusing on the kids in our rooms. And so the video, it worked out really well. And the Washington Post did an article on the video. And then we kind of decided that we wanted to keep the momentum moving. And that's when we created protectpubliced.org as initially kind of a space to house the video. But then the more we talked about it, the more we realized that, you know, there was a lot of power in having an organization that was based on teachers in classrooms. We didn't have an agenda. We didn't have anything any associations other than just being teachers who wanted to do what was best for our kids. So that was kind of how it all came to fruition. It's like your Captain Planet moment when you power, you had your powers <laughs> combined and you created this this uh, video and website. We'll make sure we, we link those in the show notes. And I really appreciate that, that purpose. I often talk to my pre-service teachers about our role as teachers that we don't get to be kind of like everyone else in society and have, you know, when our students walk into our class, we can't judge them on any level. We have to kind of affirm them and accept them for whoever they are. And it's so important, both on a moral level, but also just on a, like literally a teaching pedagogical level. Kids were going to respond in classes where they know they're valued. I think it was Kurt Cobain who said, come as you are. <laughs> Kurt Cobain, the pedagogic philosopher. So what what have you guys been doing in the organization? Can you tell us a little bit more about your efforts so far and, and some of the things that, that you started to work on? Since we started, we had the video and then we had a lot of kind of feedback from that. And we were pushing that out through social media, through Twitter and through Facebook. And then we had the Washington Post article. And then we were actually down in Florida and Tampa. The American College Football Association partnered up with the CCSSO, which is the chief council of state teachers of the year and brought us down for the National Football Championship game, which was really fun. Also, they had a lot of celebration around teachers. But during all of these kind of festivities and celebratory moments, we all gathered together and had this kind of big meeting with anyone that was really interested in the work that we were trying to do. And we were, at the moment, rallying around the impending nomination and ultimately confirmation of Betsy DeVos. And so we were just kind of talking about really countering the message that we were hearing from um, our president-elect and from Betsy DeVos, which was that public schools are failing, they're not serving our highest needs kids. And we were just kind of brainstorming and thinking of ways to really get the message out that, in fact, public schools are the best places or can be the best places for the exact kids that we're hoping to most serve. Ashley, did you write that article about a cab or an Uber? Yeah. So I read that article and I thought it was really fantastic. Uh, do you mind talking a little bit about the experience? I feel like it kind of fits into being down there in celebrating teachers. Yeah. So, you know, we we all we had created Protect Public Ed and then we had this great opportunity in Tampa, which was really like 
kind of a reunion for us and we were all happy to be there. But as Talia said, you know, we felt like we had work to do too. So we took advantage of that. So it's kind of ironic for me to be in the car with my husband and the Uber driver who was really, you know, very nice and complimentary about me being Kentucky teacher of the year. But then he was like, so how do we get everybody else to be as good as you? And it was really kind of frustrating for me because it was just yet another, you know, example of this rhetoric, this narrative that public schools are failing and all the teachers are terrible. And when in fact, like, I'm not even the best teacher in my hallway, you know, so it was just kind of ironic for me that that happened at the time when here we are, 56 of us coming together to represent all these teachers. And, you know, the average citizen doesn't always see the teachers behind us. They see us and they want to celebrate us, but they don't see that I represent 44,000 teachers in Kentucky, you know, alone, many of whom are 10 million times better than me. So, yeah, so that's kind of where that that came from. The narrative around teaching is so frustrating because, I mean, like, I always want to admit, of course, we have things to work on and things we can improve. But even saying that within a discourse where it's all or nothing, it's a total binary, like it's either why are schools failing? I hear that. I can't tell you how often I hear that sentence. And I'm just like, I've when I was teaching, I don't what was failing? Like my students were doing well. We were all like, you know, it just didn't nothing. None, nothing felt like it was failing. But you hear this message over and over. And it speaks to David Berlin, or I guess we had in a previous episode who talked about it's a manufactured crisis that has that's really has political roots um, going all the way back to the beginning of the accountability movement. So I just wanted to add to that part of the narrative can be against teacher organizing structures, whether, you know, primarily teacher unions, as you've heard, but other structures as well. And um, one of the things that we really wanted to do, and we're, we're still doing because we're in the really early stages, I think, is create a teacher voice platform or teacher organization thing, kind of grassroots, that's not affiliated with a union or an alternate funder or other objective that's driving us. And that doesn't mean that any of those other organizations are bad or malicious, but they're very easy to target as having ulterior motives. And so our video was created just really trying to, as I think Ashley and Talia said, to to combat the narrative with a, a counter narrative about who our students are and who is accepted in our classrooms. And how far we will go to fight for them. I, as someone who's worked with kids and has a high percentage of special needs students in our district, in our school, I've heard so many times, you know, bless your heart, like, (laughs) in terms of what I do. And it's not teaching is, I think, seen on this very extreme spectrum. And people don't look at the middle very often, as you just said, Dan. And so it's not a charity. It's not about having pity. And it's not just about, like Ashley said, the people who win awards and are somehow so much better than everybody else. There's a big spectrum there. And we just wanted to take advantage of getting to meet each other and start to have a collective process together. And, you know, like you said, the um, a lot of the resistance to Betsy, Betsy DeVos, I heard dismissed as just being manufactured by teachers unions who don't want to give up power. Like I heard that being the entire thing. And I was like, I'm in really close contact with a ton of educators who are in a union who are really concerned about this. And it was just such a disconnect between, but people outside of education don't know that and they feed into these political narratives. So what, what message are you sending about public education that maybe isn't getting heard by others in the media? 
So I think that that's kind of what we're working on right now. So organizing around getting people engaged and interacting with their legislators and giving them feedback about what their thoughts were on DeVos. I mean, I don't know a single educator or parent really that wasn't concerned. So I think the response to that was really good. But I think, you know, starting something is one thing. And right now what we're trying to do is kind of figure out where we're going to go next. And so we've um, been meeting and we've been talking pretty much nightly about what our next steps are and what messages that we want to continue to get out there. What do you want Protect Public Ed to do? So we're still figuring that out. But the real like passion that's driving the work is wanting to to unite our voices in a way that is not necessarily conforming, but that's consistent in terms of the way we're spreading awareness and increasing a sense of efficacy in people who care about public education systems, either teaching in it, being a student in it, having a child in it. Um, And so we're still evolving in many ways, but we want to make sure that great teachers are involved in the conversation, that all teachers are involved in the conversation around what happens to our public education system, especially for our students who may not have a voice or know the avenues yet to fight for their public education. So we really want to make sure, and I hope others will speak to this as well, but like that we don't define ourselves so early that we're really pigeonholed or we're, we're stuck with something, but that it's something that evolves through and is responsive to what's happening in the political climate, but also on the ground, like as we see what's happening with our students. When we hear there's going to be more state control, local control, you know, from the onset, it doesn't sound like a bad idea, but what you don't want is a lot of things to be out of control. And so we want to make sure that public schools, all the different states are able to meet the needs of all the students that are coming in and out of their doors each day, whether that be at a charter school or a regular uh, traditional public school. Because I worked at a charter school for many years, and I loved every second of it. But I've, I've said it before, my friends, like for every good charter school, there's other school, there's another charter school that failed miserably. Because it's really tough to not only come up with your own curriculum, because that, that's part of the deal. It's like you get to create your own curriculum, which I loved. But then people have to budget correctly, and they have to hire. They have to do a lot of the things that they're used to the district doing. Now they have to do all of it on the fly, and a lot of these charters are created by – parents that wanted to start a school in their neighborhood, which it sounds great until you actually have to get dealing with the budget, dealing with hiring. And some districts have charters and the, the teachers are a union. So you have to deal with that. And then a lot of the, when these schools fail, these kids, there's nowhere for them to go. So they, they have to switch back to another school that maybe their traditional neighborhood school. And they're just kind of left kind of hanging there. And there's, there's no, there's no accountability in a lot of these uh, different charters in some states. So what we don't want to have happen is for the accountability to go by the wayside when these charters are being built. Because like I said, I worked at one. I loved creating my own curriculum. And like I always say, it's not what you teach. It's how you teach what you're supposed to be teaching. And I love that. But uh, you know, the hardest, but I didn't have, to, didn't have to do the budget. And it took a lot of people to really get organized around the budget and planning, hiring, facilities because the district's not going to come by if your windows are are broken or you know if the technology isn't working so there's a lot there's more that goes into it than i think people really realize one thing i'll say briefly is that the discussion about charters is also so oversimplified because all charters are not the same i mean the charters the development of charters came out of it and aimed to improve public schools by having schools where you could try new things and potentially implement them but now we've seen the introduction of for-profit 
charters that really don't have those those same kind of aims. And I think like like you said, it's one thing that's really scary is about the instability that can exist within a system. We're we're just going to try out schools that potentially are going to fail and then close those schools and then kids just have to move around. And our guest on episode 42 talked about in 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 Michigan where Betsy DeVos has had a lot of influence. That's essentially what's happened, but what's ha- but also what's happened is that a lot of the funding has just been pulled out of these public schools and the kids who are who have the least means whose parents have the least means are just stuck in those schools which with less funds to pay overhead costs for heating and water and all the other things that you don't think about it hasn't worked out for those kids and the people with the most means are the ones getting their kids into these different choices um as we kind of finish up one thing i'd really like to hear what is the argument for public schools because i think that's not put forward sometimes and to me, part of, you know, this the success of making an argument about protecting public schools is both defying a lot of these false claims that are out there or this data that's really problematic, like the PISA data, which is constantly trotted out as saying why our schools are failing without people really taking the time to understand why the PISA data is probably not that useful for understanding our schools. But then also like, well, so what are public schools doing well? Yeah, so I can actually answer that or start to answer it. So this past June, some of the state teachers of the year had the opportunity to go to Finland. And I was one of five teachers who went, actually six, there were six of us. So it was really fascinating because there was, I mean, obviously Finland has been, you know, considered the best and that they, there are all these things that they do that are so amazing. And there w- there is a lot that we can learn from them. But the funny thing is, is like over the course of the, you know, the week and a half that we were there, the more conversations we had with Finnish teachers and and people in the Finnish school system, the more we realized that, you know, they're doing something amazing, primarily because they don't have to deal with poverty the way that we do. They don't have diversity. And in fact, you know, many of the people, the experts that we spoke with, so they're really struggling right now because they have an influx of Syrian refugees coming in They did, and they don't know what to do. So why public schools in our country are so great is because we take every kid, we take every kid and we teach them and we welcome them. And, you know, you can look at numbers and you can look at PISA scores and there's a lot you can say about that. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really represent you know, the fact that that every single kid, that's what's beautiful about American public schools is every single kid gets to come to that classroom and gets to learn. That's not happening everywhere else. That echoes a lot what David Berliner said on a, an earlier episode. In, as part of that, in being willing to educate everyone, I mean, we're paying the price to educate everyone. People talk about how expensive public schools are. But part of that is because we say we're going to educate students And if a student has a disability and there's costs associated with it, we're going to pay that. And we've made that commitment and many countries have not. And so they're able to say that their cost per pupil is lower than ours. But we've made a commitment to educating everyone. And it's the same thing with test scores where we've said we want everyone taking these tests. And it's in some cases, it's lowered test scores over time because we've broadened our pool. But you don't get that story when people they just use those stats to try to criticize public schools, even when great progress has been made. This is Audrey, and this is one of the things that personally I've been really concerned about and as a group is on our radar to spread awareness and sort of build advocacy around. The idea of protecting public ed also comes with protecting the laws and the accountability safeguards that have been put in place over time to ensure that every single child in every state 
has the right to a great education. With ESEA, is, ESEA is known, I think, mostly as a civil rights law within the education community, but not necessarily outside of the community. And even though the funding um, that states receive from the federal government is relatively small compared to what states and local entities contribute, it's really big in terms of you know, where our priorities are. I know someone you've talked to before, Nate Bowling, says that Budgets are moral documents, right? And so when you have legal protection for students under Title I and IDEA to have their rights protected and their funding um, equally protected, that's really important. And when you have new leaders and administration saying that they want to shift everything to school choice without accountability, those are the two big pots where the funds are right now in terms of federal education budget. So if you're going to shift budget away from that and decrease accountability, that leaves our already most marginalized and vulnerable kids even more marginalized. So it's important that we're speaking up about it, but also that we're helping families, kids, other teachers we know get involved with sharing their own stories about what it means, like Ashley was just talking about. So we have joining us one of your other colleagues in this mission, Tim Royers from Omaha. He better have a good excuse for being late. <laughs> <laughs> we had we had advisement conferences tonight, so I was uh, yeah. Hopefully, that's a good enough excuse. <laughs> that I think that's actually means that you're a pretty good teacher who's doing some work still, right? So we uh, we'll let this one go. No tardy for you. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> Tim, can you tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, so I teach social studies out at Miller West High School in Omaha. So this year it's uh, AP World History and regular world history. I used to be, for eight years, I coached debate. Uh, and then debate's like 20 weekends a year. So I decided to make it so my wife wasn't a single parent and my children would actually see me. So I stopped that a couple of years ago. But then I'm also really active with the uh, professional association for our local district. So I'm the chief negotiator for our teachers union. So I'm in the midst of attempting to bargain a $140 million contract right now, which is a little bit tough, but uh, somebody's got to do it. So those are kind of the major wheelhouses that I'm in external to the classroom. It's so interesting, like the wide variety of, of, of tasks that teachers take on, you know, Absolutely. negotiating a $140 million contract. That's a pretty impressive thing to do <laughs> that you typically don't think that teachers do. And I, and I think that that, like the job of a teacher and the, the things that teachers do is not always known or told. Yeah, because there's, well, there's so many things that, you know, unfortunately, we can't stay just isolated in our classroom. There's so many things that, that can externally impact our ability to teach. And if we all remain, if we all just stick to our classroom and kind of keep our heads in the sand, then there's really no one that's working to make sure that uh, we have all the resources and everything that we need. And so we got to do what we can to make it happen. So that's why, you know, your organization makes so much sense because teaching is a political act, but also teaching exists within political context, right? If we don't advocate for, for the, you know, whether it's the funds or the policies that are going to best help our students learn, then they're going to lose out and we're going to lose out. And so yeah. that's, that's what makes sense. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's fundamentally we're public employees, which means this political decisions are made that impact our ability to do our jobs. And I, I know that's always 
you know, people, there's people that get uneasy about the idea of teachers being political. But one of the messages that I've said quite a bit the past few months is that the, there's a distinction between being political and being partisan, right? That you can advocate a political stance that's issues based rather than party based or loyalty to any one person or group. And I think also it's dangerous to say that teachers should be apolitical when it comes to education because we're the experts on education. So the idea that we should cede our voices and just remain quiet about it means that you've just removed the experts in the field from from being able to say anything about a bill or a budget proposal, and you're leaving it into the hands of people who are inexperienced and don't necessarily know how that could impact the classroom. Yeah, I appreciate that point, Tim. I, I like to, I'm from Oklahoma, and I like to think back to Clara Looper who was a teacher who, with students, led sit-ins of the Katz Drugstore, desegregated Katz Drugstores nationally with her students. And, you know, looking, you know, looking back, it's easy to say, wow, what great work. But at the time, there's most politicians in Oklahoma probably wanted her fired from her job for oh, taking sure. that stand. And so it's the same thing today. I think we have to be advocates for all of our students when they walk into the classroom. Yep. So. So what can what can other educators do to support um, the work that you guys are doing? I think there's a lot of educators that really want to do more to step up and make their voice heard because I think that there's a lot of frustration and disgust nationally and locally about policies and proposals that are being made that just aren't educationally sound. But then uh, they don't necessarily know what they can do or how they can effectively lobby people in elected positions to make it so that they take their opinion into account. And so... Part of it is just reading up more. Thanks to the election of Donald Trump, there's been an upsurge in interest in political activism. So there's a number of different places, including what we're trying to do with our group, that are just trying to explain to people, this is the most effective way to make your voice heard. This is how the process works. And just kind of trying to improve that civic knowledge. I remember in the last couple of days of, of fighting for over the Betsy DeVos nomination, you know, there a, a panic set in amongst a bunch of teachers because they announced that they were going to start the procedures on voting at something like 6.30 in the morning on Friday, and everybody was freaking out because they thought that they were trying to, you know, some last minute dirty trick to make the vote early. But that's just because the Senate has really arcane rules about how there's a certain number of hours that has to happen before a vote. And so they did it on Friday morning to make sure they could actually finish the vote Tuesday afternoon. And so it's just kind of that making yourself more knowledgeable piece that really is important for educators. When when I uh, got interviewed for some quotes from the Wall Street Journal, they were legitimately stunned at the number of teachers that were kind of in the know of the best way to, to, to get their voice heard. And they said they really hadn't seen anything like that before. And so I think that that kind of demonstrates that uh, we're already kind of moving in the right direction to try and to try and get our perspective to the to the right tables, basically. And I would also add to that that teachers, I think, are finding that they actually can talk to their legislators. Yep. Um, and I would encourage any teachers out there to invite their legislators to their classrooms, let them see what's happening, and let their kids see that they can talk to them as well, let their kids understand that they can be a part of any kind of civic action, and that there isn't this halo around them, that they're distanced in some Capitol building 50, 100 miles away from them, that they actually can talk to them, ask them questions, and tell them what they think. One thing that teachers can take advantage of is there, there's kind of this interesting cognitive dissonance that, the, that a lot of people in the public have when it comes to education where they will individually value a teacher, right? They'll say, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for helping kids. But then they will openly criticize like the public education system, or they'll openly criticize like teachers as a group, right? Like, oh, it's just those, you know, those dirty unions and they're just trying to look out for themselves, like that kind of criticism. So by actually speaking up, 
it forces them to dispel these group generalizations that they have about public education because no longer it's we're not just a generic boogeyman anymore. You're going to have to tell a specific teacher to their face that, you know, they're saying things that aren't in the best interest of children, that they're not helping kids when in reality, obviously, that's not true. And I think we were more willing to kind of take those first steps because we all kind of have a little bit of extra armor by virtue of being labeled teacher of the year, right? That kind of protects us a little bit where if we catch flack, there's some credibility behind it. But I think truly most educators would find that if they stand up, people are going to listen to them and really respect their opinion that they bring. And actually, to that point, it's interesting because uh, on one of our teacher of the year trips, I was sitting on the bus next to someone who was a former teacher and now works for you know an educational nonprofit. And it was really interesting because she said to me, you know, I really, really miss being a teacher because now all I do is get people coffee and, you know, arrange lunches and I've got this great title, but I don't really, you know, I don't really have the credibility anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was this moment of realization that like, because I had been experiencing it over the course of, you know, the few months I'd been Kentucky teacher of the year. That if I walked up to a legislator and shook their hand and said, I'm Kentucky Teacher of the Year, that had a lot of power in it. But it wasn't even really about being Kentucky Teacher of the Year when I heard her say that. It was about being a teacher. Even though, you know, as teachers, we feel like we get a lot of flack, we get a lot of criticism from the public, and there's a negative narrative. At the end of the day, everybody knows, everybody has a teacher in their life who has meant something to them. Everybody has a respect for, the act of teaching. And so when you walk up to somebody and shake their hand and say, I'm a teacher, there there's power in that. And, you know, I think that the sooner teachers realize that power that comes with saying, I am a teacher and I work with students, I think the better off our entire educational system will be because we will be more involved in policy and that kind of thing. And I think that's a part of our organization. And what we're trying to do is activate this grassroots movement of teachers who are you know, working every day to have that power and be empowered to do that. Sean Sheehan was on a previous episode and he was the Oklahoma teacher of the year. And he actually started a small little organization called Teach Like Me with just the simple point of pointing out, like, I'm a teacher and I'm proud of being a teacher. And, you know, you can ask me questions about teaching. And my best friend, like, made the T-shirts. That's So I thought I'd share that. <laughs> you can buy them. <laughs> but we it's really cool. Them. Oh, you guys all do? Oh, we got them. Yeah, oh, yeah. we all have them. Yay, my friend made those. So that's really cool. So I think teachers in, traditionally have been reluctant to be politically involved in any aspect of the government. And, you know, as a history teacher, I always felt it was my job to teach what is happening, you know, not share my opinion, uh, discuss current events. And then all of a sudden this last year, our job is, I think the job is transformed kind of right in front of our eyes. I'm kind of thinking out loud right now as I'm, I'm saying it, like, we are named teachers of the year that just happened to be this year, the craziest political year ever, at least in the last since world war two, let's say. And, um, even though we've been reluctant in the past to be involved, I think we realized we had to be voices and not just like from a, uh, a union point of view, which we, I still believe unions are important, but like from teachers caring about their students point of view and how vulnerable many of our students are. And I've seen it in my own classrooms and, you know, other people can share too about how um, vulnerable the students are around the country, and we realize we have to speak up. We have to, to use our voices. That in this particular year is just using our platform, but like 
also giving that voice to other teachers that weren't as lucky as us, as us this year to be um, named teacher of the year, even though, like Ashley said, there's a lot of teachers in my school that definitely deserve that title more than I do. You know, we don't, we don't have to rely on a group spokesperson to say what we think is important. We all need to be saying things it, like there's power in numbers literally this time, like making those phone calls to senators about DeVos, you know, and that was a historical vote in the Senate that the vice president had to put a vote in. And so that was uh, just one battle loss. And I think, you know, we're just going to have to work with this new, the new secretary of education. And, you know, if nothing else, she seems nice. You know, I, I think, you know, we can always work with nice. And, um, but I, I literally think the job has changed and it's more than just being in your classroom. You have to be aware of what's going on and be a spokesperson for uh, all the kids. Yeah. It's interesting because I hear you saying a lot of, you know, it's time to, to use your voice. And I was thinking about like this whole concept of raising your voice and raising your voice, you know, you can do it in a couple different ways. You can do one by yelling, which is probably not the best way. Or you can multiply your voice by getting many people involved. And that does raise, you know, the voice of teachers. And I feel like that that's what your organization is is doing. So thank you on behalf of me uh, and Dan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, us. Thank, thank you. So I know that there's probably multiple ways to get in contact with you. But I think that Twitter might be a, a pretty good way. Could you guys tell us what your Twitter address is? And we'll make sure to link them on the show notes. Mine is at MW underscore Royers, R-O-Y-E-R-S. And so mine is at T Edland, E-D-L-U-N-D-1. Mine is at Ms. Boston Teacher, which is just M-S Boston Teacher. Uh, mine is at Bmore with two E's, B-E-E-M-O-R-E 327, at Bmore 327. And mine is at Ashley lamb l-a-m-b-s and talia could you give us the uh, contact information for the for the website so it's protectpublicedorg and we have a facebook page okay and we'll make sure to link all of this on the show notes so at the visions of education podcast we're all about sharing the learning if you're doing something creative if you're doing something neat if you're doing something that you want to talk about feel free to hit us up on twitter we're at visions of ed or you can hit us up on our Facebook page. We are there too. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or why not all three? And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And we appreciate it because it helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. The border in Finland, is that called the finish line?